Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called An Interview with 21st Century Saints. Hey, thank you so much for coming back to listen to yet another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. Today's episode is a little bit different format from the usual. I was recently interviewed back on May 4th of 2022 by the wonderful folks over at the 21st Century Saints podcast. And they also invited Peter Bleakley from the Mormon Civil War podcast. If you're familiar with the podcasters over there from the UK, these are part of the Britvengers, as they call themselves. So they brought me onto their show to talk a little bit about myself and my podcast and also Star Wars, because we recorded this on Star Wars Day, May the 4th. One quick thing. I was running into some audio issues while doing this recording. I've tried to clean it up as best I can, but my audio is is not great in this recording. So please forgive uh, any of the cutting in and out in my track. I've since fixed the problem and everything should be back to normal. Welcome to 21st Century Saints, our podcast and live stream series for members, those affiliated with, those who have an interest in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here in the United Kingdom and around the world. We are really excited for tonight's episode. Happy Star Wars Day, everyone, um, and may the 4th be with you. Our <laughs> co-host tonight, so... Okay, Alana is still not not quite there yet, but is maybe able to join us in a little while. So if we if she jumps in, then excellent. And if we don't see her, then I'm sure she'll be hanging around in the chat a little bit later on. Um, tonight we have our co-host Peter Bleakley from Mormon Civil War. Do you want to say hey, Peter? Hello, hello, everybody. <laughs> Peter, you've got a I'm new, excited. This is going to be a weird one. Out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do uh, at last. After six months, I've finally produced something. So I've got a whole bunch uh, sort of mainly responding to the Brad Wilcox debacle. And then I've got some more to come out afterwards about the Swedish Boise and British rescues, which we haven't even got to yet. And uh, so lots coming now. I'm on a roll again. I have been working on them all this time, just haven't got them published and out there. So there should be a fairly swift succession of some more content from me at last. And we've all... <laughs> I'm getting excited for... about Scots. Yes. <laughs> so the new, we have our guest tonight is the incredible new podcast on the block. I, I don't really, you know, big up podcasts because there's so many out there. But sometimes something comes along that's so special. And I think this is this is one of those um really special ones. There's a lot to get our teeth into. There's so much to talk about. And when I was listening to the first couple of episodes of Ramiumpton Ruminations, 
one of the first thoughts genuinely that I had was if this was a conversation that happened in church, Peter Bleakley would be stopping you at the end to say, (laughs) and church would be like, you you guys would be there all night. Um, It just is such an interesting discussion. Um, So this is Scott from Ramiumptum Ruminations. I cannot recommend it highly enough. (laughs) Thank you so much. Those are such kind words, and I really appreciate that, Jane. Do you want to say hi and tell us a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, um, of course. So Ramiumptum Ruminations, um, it's a podcast I started almost a year ago to the date. I'm coming up on my one-year mark next month, like early June, I think. Um, And it's just a place for me to go and talk about the random things that are going on in my head. Um, I kind of follow both some of the comments and some of the discussions that um, listeners have with me through the various channels. And sometimes I'll do full episodes responses to those. Sometimes it's just something I've been thinking about from a movie I watched or a book I've been reading. Um, I kind of just talk about whatever comes into my head (laughs) and I try and relate it all back to Mormonism. Um, and it works. It's superb. I, I'm really loving it. So um, how many episodes have you done so far? Do you know? So this week I released episode 49. So I'm coming oh. up on 50. Um, I I am almost, as I said, to the one year mark. I am. Um, I think when I hit one year, it will be episode 54. I did miss a couple weeks, but there were a few weeks throughout the year where I released extra episodes. So I yeah. think episode 54 should, or pardon me, 52 should line up exactly with my one. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Also, happy birthday also to uh, our, our friend um, and fellow Brit Avenger Priesthood Dispatches is also oh. <laughs> celebrating this one year. We uh, we were at our one year marked mark a few weeks ago, so yeah, something seems to have happened last year that that we were all like, let's turn the mics on, people. Yeah. Um, but what happens when we have um, a really good podcast with a unique voice is we start to wonder a little bit about the host and what brought you there. And although you do, <laughs> you, know, you you talk about some of your background a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, I want to ask more about you tonight. So, of course. I will be an open book with one stipulation. Okay. My wife's story is hers to tell. Since she's okay. not here, I, will, um, I won't share much about her, um, just to be respectful. Because I, I don't want to get in trouble and say something I'm not supposed to say. <laughs> Which I do all the time. Oh, my goodness. No, well done. Uh, that, is inc- that is incredibly respectful. Um, Start us off then with, um, so you were born in the church. What's what yeah. degree? Tell us about so life. How, how much or little um, in depth do you want me to get into this? Um, no. I can give kind of like a, a, a brief version and maybe you could ask me more details about some of the things that might jump out at you. Or yeah. Well, what, yeah. What, te- you know what I think we should do is where does your mind take you tonight? Like what, what things are sticking out most to you? And we'll follow up. So, um, as you said, born and raised in the church, you know, very normal um, Mormon background. Um, I, I've never lived in Utah, so I'm not from Utah. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Portland, Oregon. I live in a suburb just outside of Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
So my experience with the religion was a bit different, maybe more akin to what yours is over there in the UK, where Mormons were not the majority. Um, in my high school, you know, there was just a, you know a handful, a couple dozen of us that were actually members of the church. And so my my experience growing up was not um, typical from what uh, uh, those that grew up in Utah was. Um, and it kind of gives you this, this feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm choosing the right when everybody around me isn't. <laughs> and so you kind of almost have this like holier than thou yeah. built into the religion just because of the fact that you don't live around people that um, have all of the truth, yeah. according to the theology. Um, you know, I could go through a bunch of details. I had, I developed through the theology, a really unhealthy relationship with repentance and prayer mm. um really self-abasing and unhealthy for my mental health um, it led to some real severe problems i didn't follow all of the laws of chastity had to delay my mission for a bit i did go i served in um in chile for the two years from 2006 to 2008 um loved it had some really cool experiences but i would say that's where my religious deconstruction began although i didn't didn't mm. um realize it um there were things that i stopped believing was brad, in was brad wilcox your mission president <laughs> <laughs> no but my mission president is in the 70 um uh elder ceballos mm -hmm. it was my mission president. um okay. yeah so well, can i ask you to let, let's go back then a little bit because i i do want to ask about you know you talk about prayer and you talk about repentance okay um, a lot of our audience is active yeah. Mormon. A lot of our audience is um, transitioning out. We, we really spread across the board okay. and it doesn't make sense. I think especially we're, later on, we're going to get into some really cool Star Wars stuff. Okay. We're going to have cool. some fun with it. And so the idea of something that works that can only be seen as a good thing, prayer, how can someone have a problem with prayer? Yeah. So this is a discussion that my wife and I have had off and on for years now um, throughout my whole religious deconstruction, because her relationship with prayer and repentance was very healthy. It was you know, just exactly what you would expect and the ideal of, of this relationship that you build with God. But mine was heavily influenced from the scriptures in Nephi, where, you know, I am lower than the dust. You know, I can't do anything without God. And I took inspiration from these, um, these self-abasing prayers in the scriptures and internalized it in a way that I don't think everybody does. And for me, that was the way you connected with God was recognizing that you were less than him um, or her or they, whatever you want to call God. Um, <clears throat> and so for me, from a very young age, it wasn't healthy and I, it didn't have an impact on me mentally at first. But, you know, 10 years down the road of, of treating myself like that um, just was not good for me. And it led to some real serious depression and um, some suicidal ideation. Content warning if you, for those. Uh, just throw that out there. Um, now, I, the other thing I do want to say is I recognize that my depression isn't 100% in the church's hands or on the church's um, culpability, if you will. Um, I am medicated now, and that helps me so much to keep um, almost like a baseline um, mental stability. Um, 
in a way that I wasn't able to do on my own. And so I recognize that part of it was the chemistry in my brain and part of it was the religious system that I came from. So I, I, I want to be fair in the way I'm portraying this, that it's not 100% the church's fault. Mm. What does adding for someone who is maybe pre-programmed, shall we say, to um, really take these issues not only to heart, but to process them in a way that is potentially going to cause you harm? Yeah. How does repentance sit with that? To throw repentance into the mix is yeah. Strong. So yeah, it's really strong. Um, there's a scripture in Doctrine and Covenants. I want to say it's 76. Um, I could look it up, but we'll just continue the discussion. We maybe throw it in the show notes later. Um, but it's the verse where it talks about if you sin after you have repented, all of your previous sins are back on oh yeah that's terrible isn't it yeah oh yeah and so i i had this Mm. maybe i'll explain this as well i have ever since i was a kid i have thought about my own death with an unhealthy regularity and just recognized my mortality um that i'm not going to be here forever and so i just like i knew that the end was coming and almost you know on a weekly sometimes daily basis. And it's still today. I think about the end regularly. And so pairing that with, um, you know, anytime I would make a mistake, I'm like, Oh no, suddenly all of the horrible things that I've done in my past, horrible, you know, I wasn't a bad kid. I just, but at the time I thought that, you know, me breaking the law of chastity as a kid or some other things that I had done. um, I, every time I made even the smallest mistake, it was like immediately I'm like, Oh no, everything I've ever done wrong is back on my head. I'm like, I had better not die before Sunday so that I can take the sacrament again. Mm. And um, it was really unhealthy for me. Yeah. Can I just say something, something I've been reflecting on a lot recently is that kind of messaging that we give to children. That um, one of the things I've discussed in my podcast is how still the church keeps pointing to for the strength of youth, even to senior leaders as being the, the, the law, the be all and end all of what our view of the law of chastity is. While well, moderating policies to do with not asking intrusive questions in interviews and such like thing about sexual things. But they haven't checked for the strength of youth because for the strength of youth tells all young people that any kind of sexual sin is said second only to murder of any degree and that they must talk to their parents and their bishop about it. So the kids are being traumatized with this completely unrealistic high level expectation with no safe framing of any kind of sexuality going on. Um, and that is what they're told to memorize. And, and I think there's a psychodrama that goes on in church where adults who, who didn't have a perfect childhood have this totalitarian vision that if we only raise our children right with the right intensity, they won't make all the human mistakes we did. So I think we project a lot of fear and angst and pressure onto young people and everything to do with their sexuality. That is that if you've grown up in the church, you're just pummeled by it all the way through. And it's it's incredibly abusive, as one of the as Sarah said, you know. And yeah. that particular you know, that particular idea that when you sin again, all your previous sins come back to you. 
haunted me as a child. You know, I'm only really starting to process a lot of this stuff. And we're still giving this messaging to the kids. And the adults balance it out. They've had life experience. They don't take things so literally. They assume that children understand there's a sliding scale of sin. But that is literally not what we're actually teaching them. <laughs> and yeah. in Brad's defense, while well, I've been going on a, you know, I'm trying to, in exploring Brad Wilcox as mm-hmm. both a victim and a perpetrator of some of these systems of abuse, he recently gave an amazing conference talk that was revolutionary, in which he basically referenced that and said, this is a bad idea. He kind of was talking about a young person growing up in the church and saying that being told that every time he slips up, it's all disaster and all his previous sins come back or is is not healthy. And that's the first time ever, ever a general authority has said that from the pulpit. And in one go, he neutralized like generations of dysfunctional uh, messaging and parenting. And it yeah. just showed how easy it would be for these guys to get it right. And even Brad's worked out that this is a disaster and demoralizing young people and tipping them into unhealthy mental illness. Um, yeah. So I'm really, you know, I've, I just feel very strongly about this at the moment. And you, you and I and all of us in whatever degree have have experienced the terrible consequences of this that as you say, your prep, something that should be healthy and positive and empowering becomes yeah. an endless cycle of guilt. A relationship with Christ becomes about your guilt. And this was really ramped up by, for you know, Miracle of Forgiveness and the whole philosophy oh, yeah. with that from Spencer W. <laughs> Kimball. That was the man, you know, that was the manual for all the priesthood leaders advising us. Um, yeah, I was given it's really a copy. such an important issue. Yeah. I was given a copy of Miracle of Forgiveness when I was 18 and told mm. that I needed to read it before I could go on my mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was not good for me. I had some really funny thoughts. I've always thought about things funny. Um, one of the things that sticks out to me today from that is um, in there, he talks about masturbation leading to homosexuality. Mm. And in my head, I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, I'm not homosexual but I've done that. So is there like a certain number of times that you have to do it before you turn gay? And what's that number? Like, when am I going to hit that mark and suddenly become gay? And I, yeah. I thought about that for a, for way too long and it still sits with me today. I'm, I... Anyway, I, I'm still not. So yeah, I don't yeah. know what that number is. Yeah. Can we take you back to when you, you didn't try hard enough? You're right. I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh Can man! Take you back to pre-mission. Um, did did anybody recognize mm. that you were having these feelings at all? No, and I think it's part of the culture. Um, yeah. And maybe the culture within my own family, the culture within the church. Mm-hmm. There, um, growing up, there was a real stigma around anything to do with mental health. Um, discouraging of medication discouraging of seeking therapy that sort of thing it's all looked down upon um part of my uh, intention with you know explicitly mentioning that i take medication is I want to destigmatize it um the way i look at it is no different than glasses like i my brain can't function without medication and it's just mm-hmm. like glasses you know some eyes can't see without glasses mm-hmm. that doesn't mean the eyes are bad it just means they need help mm-hmm. I needed help and I didn't get it. 
So mm. often we talk about the messaging that children receive and even in youth, we've got these um, awful guidelines in for strength of youth. And as much as those guidelines have been broken in horrific ways repeatedly, when it comes to mission prep, we're in a whole other problematic oh, yeah. world there. <laughs> All of yeah. the previous restraints are now gone because you're now preparing for a mission. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that that period of mission prep then. You know, I I have always dove headfirst into whatever I'm focused on. And it was no different with mission prep. You know, I, I made sure to read through all of the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, before I left. I wanted to make sure that I had a, a good knowledge of everything jumping into it. Um, and for me, the mission prep side wasn't as bad because I was excited. You know, it's what I told, I had been told all growing up that it was what I was supposed to do and I was going to have amazing experiences. And, and frankly, I did. There were a lot of things in my mission that I still can't explain away rationally. Um, things that could probably be considered miracles by those in the church. But where I stand now, I just, I unexplained, like, I don't know, like maybe I manifested them because I really wanted these things to happen. But um, I don't know. I, I was 100% all in and I saw, I saw and did really crazy, miraculous things while I was down there. In fact, some of the other elders would call me the prophet Dyer, um, El Profeta Dyer, while I was down there, just because of some of the crazy things that followed me. Um, anyway, so I dove head first. And the, like the actual like mission prep wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was the repentance aspect of it, trying to get ready. And I wasn't delayed a ton. I just went out like a year later. I was 20 when I left. So. You know, we had a a comment there who talks about someone having childhood OCD and that no one in the family notices. And I I think it's actually quite a a good comparison um, that... With OCD, so I've had I've had OCD since my teenage years, and um, it's most of my rituals are mental. Uh, So no one, no one in my family would notice because it's all happening. And you also think it's normal at a really young age. This is what life looks like, but um, it would be like swallowing a certain number of times, or my knee has to be a certain position before I can swallow or um, things like that. But no one's going to pay attention to that because they are not living in your, Mm -hmm. your mind. And while I don't have scrupulosity, um, I'm able to sort of differentiate the two. It really interests me that um, in, in our church upbringing, all of these things that we're experiencing are playing out in our own minds. So we, you know, for, for repentance, um, no one has any clue about how you're actually internalizing uh. these messages. So how, how even would they begin to, to notice it? Yeah. I, I don't know that they would be able to. Um, when did you, when hard- did you actually recognize it for what it is? How, how old were you? Oh, I was probably 26 or 27. Um, I, at that point, I'd been married for a couple of years. I had a very young child. Um, I, I had a lot of comorbidities, a lot of different things going on. I had undiagnosed ADHD and um, 
pretty severe depression. And so there's a lot of different things going on. Um, and it, there's some overlap with the OCD, with ADHD, at least for me. Like, um, I don't know, anytime I'm interrupted or anytime that like I have to change like tasks or subjects, it like really like throws me off and there's like an instant spiral downward. Um, and having a kid like really set off a lot of those things. Um, and so there was, there was a tie, I don't know, like early marriage was really bad for my mental health just because I didn't know all the problems that I had, but to answer your question, and I guess this was a long roundabout way of getting there. Um, I have, and we have no way to compare the way our brains process with anyone else. So I didn't know how my parents internalized, internalized religion. I didn't know how they prayed individually. I didn't know how they thought. I didn't know how their brains worked. I only knew how mine does. And I still only know how mine works. I don't know how anybody else's works. So I have nothing. I literally have nothing to compare it to. And I don't think anybody does. Because that's not something that we can easily articulate. And I mean, I totally agree. And when, when, so I, I have a, a son who has um, learning difficulties, autism, a whole spectrum of things going on, that there are things that I wish I, I feel like I should be able to help with, but there's this barrier that when Alana has maybe experienced some of the same things, okay, um, there's a thing called cuteness aggression. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, right? But you may, this is, this is so, um, you either recognize it or you don't. It's it's one of those extremes. Um, a lot of, especially women, will experience that um, when they see a baby, and the baby's so cute that you want to you want to hold the baby. Most people have a, a kind of response of, oh, you know, that's cute, and they want to snuggle. Some people you'll hear, I just want to give the baby a squeeze. Oh, I could just squeeze the baby. That's what I'm <laughs> to the point where you have to take this baby away from me because I'm worried I'm going to hurt the baby. I really need to. <laughs> it's called cuteness aggression. And it's a sort of the mind's attempt to sort of regulate and, and balance out this overwhelming feeling of, of cuteness. You need to yeah. have that release. So I, I have no idea what people are talking about when they experience that. Yeah. But my it makes son, me think of Lenny from <laughs> Vice and Men. It, Right. It, but so when you get that, and this is what's great about literature too, and, and therapies and counseling is when someone gives you that insight into how your mind works or how it like is how my son's mind works, you recognize that thing. This is awesome. And it's totally paradigm changing and it opens uh, everything up and you're having this existential revelation type yeah that's what that is it is very very cool everyone go for therapy yes Mormon. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so helpful so helpful so how did the mission go did so what you, sorry, yeah you what what were the what oh that's all right go ahead um so i've i've kind of got two things in buzzing in my brain so what one is the see um to get star wars with this i'm c3po um and jane is yoda and very empathetic mm. um so i'm interested <laughs> in what 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 you're you can speak five million languages during the <laughs> yeah not quite no <laughs> um 
what what was it in your mission that that kind of because I'm I've I've been mission, ward mission leader three times and served a mission. I'm 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 in my head sort of starting to prep an episode about what can we do to sort of save Mormon missions from being um, unhealthy in the ways that they are. Um, so I'm really intrigued about what what sort of triggered you to to perhaps start thinking outside the box a bit more, um, but also just literally the place you're in because. Um, in the sort of the narrative of post-Mormonism or, or nuanced Mormonism, Chile is quite important. We we lived through the 80s where there was this sense that the church is huge in Latin America. The Lamanites are all converting. You can <laughs> baptize a village, you know, and there's this incredible pressure to keep up a, a huge baptism rate. And then we're now finding out most of that was baseball baptism nonsense, or a lot of it was, or that's the stories being told, and mm-hmm. that... Elder Holland had to go and spend months or years in Chile consolidating stakes and closing them down because only 2% of the members were actually active and yeah. the missionaries have been baptizing dead people and all kinds of stuff going on <laughs> with some very dysfunctional missionaries. And it was kind of a rehash of what we were living with the aftermath of. The original baseball bat- baptisms happened in our country. So in the 50s and 60s, there was this incredible pressure that the British mission was the top baptizing in the world and they had to keep it up. And they they engaged in really unethical practices to do that. And as we were growing up in the 70s and 80s, in the aftermath of that, we already had ward lists ram-packed with huge numbers of people who probably didn't even know they were members of the church. Mm-hmm. And to hear that that then played out all over again in Latin America, I'm just so... My my yeah. facts and figures C three PO brain mm-hmm. is interested in your observations or, yeah. or witness of any of that going on, but also of course what was your personal journey? So give us yeah, that. of course yes. Yeah. So I'll I'll address um, the kind of the numbers side of things, and then I'll talk about some of the experiences I had. Mm. Um, now I was definitely on the tail end of those baseball baptisms. Um, now in South America, they're not baseball. They're over there in the UK. It's football or for here in the United States, soccer baptisms. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have on P day and Saturdays, we would, we would still have these like big soccer things where we just go to the field, we'd play. Um, in fact, um, a lot of the chapels down there, they have like, instead of like a basketball court, like they have here in the United States, I don't know if they have those over there in the UK, mm-hmm. but in Chile, Chile, they had a little football or futsal, like a small soccer court where it was like mm. half the size of a basketball court and they had two goals in the end. And, you know, it's designed mm. the way they played. And I'm, I'm sure this is played over there as well across the pond. But uh, when you score the goal, you can't lift it off the ground. It has to roll across. And that was the game that mm. we played with everybody, um, both P days and on Saturdays. Um, now, that's how we did a lot of tracting. We didn't, we didn't have any rules or regulations on like, oh, you have to be baptized in order to play. But that was definitely a tool we used mm. to entice people mm. to um, listen to us. Um, I will say, as I said, it was on the, the tail end of this. So my mission president, he, great guy, honestly, he was, his focus was on legitimate baptisms. I, and I have nothing bad to say about the way he ran the mission. He was awesome. I loved mm. working for him as a mm. missionary. Uh, fond memories of his lessons and his his uh, just anything that came out of his mouth. I absolutely loved him. And you know, maybe I disagree with it now, but no ill will towards this man. Um, I think he did a great job. That now, in direct contrast, a lot of the zone leaders they were perpetuating some of this un, these unhealthy practices. 
and it didn't sit right with me. And so I, I didn't baptize the most people while I was out there. I didn't baptize the least, but I, I didn't like the sort of baseball baptisms that, that we've been talking about. So I never did those. Um, just didn't sit right with me. And I had missionary, I had companions that were frustrated by this. Um, but you know, I just, I didn't like it. So I didn't do it. But you and could that was, have. Oh, I, oh, easily, easily could have. <laughs> now we weren't baptizing people that had already passed away, but um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was so easy. And I don't know why all the time, but anyone that I asked to get baptized, I'd say 50% of the time would say yes without like any consideration uh maybe they'd you know change what their was, mind a week or two later but yeah because you do get a lot of people analyze culture clash in different cultures in the world so um where people have a tradition of if you've got a guest or someone in your house you will never say no to them you'll just say yes yeah. to anything they ask but you you don't actually mean it you know yeah. and then these westerners are kind of perplexed of why these people didn't turn up for the baptism they agreed to last week <laughs> and and there's a bit of that going on did yeah. it, did what was retention like for because this oh, was a time when president hinckley was starting to try and emphasize retaining people you know not just filling the ward lists with numbers and yeah um Sorry, so so i don't know if you have any sort of ballpark yeah. data on what percentage of people baptized are actually there three years later or um, do you have any sense of that yeah so i kept in contact i'm still in contact with a couple of the people that i baptized um and mm. it wasn't a you know crisp clean number so i couldn't you know give percentages mm. but less mm. than five are still active um mm. and in south america we baptize a lot of people i didn't quite make it to triple digits mm but I was getting close. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and as far as retention goes, um, almost every ward that I served in had well over a thousand members on record in the area. Now, whether they live there still, who knows, but mm. we never usually had more than a hundred people attending. So, you know, in the ballpark, 10 to 20% activity rate is what mm. I experienced while I was there. Alana Wilson Brown's joining. Oh, <laughs> and um, and that's what we're having here now. Hey, hey Alana. it's Alana. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, Alana has been out for such a long time. We're just so happy that you're back. Yep, I got a bit held up, so I made Nothing it good. Oh, I apologize for my messy office. Okay, you know, just, just throw that. I know. It's like, oops. <laughs> I liked it better than it was like, you know, right in my. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so oh. you you then you move. So that's on. that's that's very much like sorry to to just butt in a no, bit um, with my data yes. obsession. So that really is where we are, you know just to make comparisons because you know there are these connections. Um, before COVID, we we knew from leaked data that um, the activity rates in Britain were down to fourteen percent, and we're pretty sure now that it's gone down another ten, so uh, another twenty percent. So we are hitting a similar percentage of around eleven or ten percent active here, um, and that's you know what you're experiencing there in Chile, and and certainly seems to match the the information coming out there. It just seems like so much effort for so little to show for it, just by having these dysfunctional obsessions with numbers and. Yeah. 
and the burden that places on the few active members. This is very much a shared sort of pain that, that is being inflicted on us globally by these systems. Yeah, amazing. Did your zone leaders give you grief? So you said you had, you know, they were quite keen for the numbers. You know, did you, know, you find yourself in conflict with them at, at points? No, I, however it worked out, I baptized or had a baptism, not every week, but it was mm. almost every other week for the full two years. You know, the, you know, the mission training center for a couple months. But my entire time in Chile, it was like every other week I had a baptism. Well, I always had things going. Um, they never came down on me as far as my methods because they were working. Um, but I just never listened to them because I just, I just, just didn't jive with me. And that's just who I am. I, I kind of, <laughs> when a person in authority tells me what they think I should do, if I disagree, I'll just listen, nod, smile, and then continue doing my thing because it works. <laughs> do you have any contact with people that you once baptized? Are you, do you still have a connection to any of the people? Some of them, yes. Um, one of one of the gals that I baptized, she later married the elder that did her baptismal interview. <laughs> I'm still in touch with them on occasion. Um, okay. So do you get a sense for how, how the church is changing amongst the people that you were once serving in that way? No, I don't. I don't have a pulse on it. I I've always wanted to go back, but now it kind of feels weird. It's like if I go back and visit these people, it's like I'm I'm not the same guy that I was, and, and I don't. So many yeah. people feel that way. Yeah, after, after they serve missions and deconstruct, so many people are concerned about speaking, in case they affect the people that they they once. Um, you know, yeah. who made big life decisions based on the stuff that you were talking about then. What happens now? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I that I've always tried, you know, at least with my podcast, is I try to allow space for people to disagree with me. And I would hate to both be the person who brought someone into the religion and then also brought them out. Like I don't know, there's just something that feels wrong about that. To mm-hmm. me. <laughs> so I haven't reached out to anybody afterwards. Well, see, you leave that you leave so much space in your podcast for the I don't know part. It's it's really I find that really stimulating. You give us the space to to think about it. You served for quite a while as doctrine gospel doctrine teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I off and on over the course of you know basically from when I got home from my mission to when I left the church, I taught gospel doctrine for the majority of my time. Um, you know, in young men's for a couple of years, but you know, always back gospel doctrine. And then the last couple of years, I was in the stake young men's. Um, but uh, by then, by the time I got that calling, I was I was already so far deconstructed that I just basically wasn't even there anymore. <laughs> but I took a calling and I tried my hardest to be good at it because I was kind of you know the female you know, physically in. The- uh, yeah, so the majority of my time in the church, and I'm I'm 36 now, or turning turning 36 in a couple of months here. Um, so basically, from the time I got back from my mission, 22 to maybe 32, so about 10 years of of off and on gospel doctrine teaching. How were your classes received? Always wonderfully, and um, I mm-hmm. I've always. <laughs> thought different than other people i think i don't know but i i come into it and i never followed the guidelines i always you know i pitched the book day one um mm. 
I look at the the lessons that, you know, this was the pattern that I would always, always follow. I'd look at what the scriptures were. I'd find the most compelling either set of scriptures or story within that section. And I would only talk about that. And I wouldn't ask the questions that are in there. I wouldn't teach what they were supposed to, you know, if it were focusing on, you know, David and his whole, his whole story, I would, I remember one whole lesson. I just, I just talked about the relationship between David and Jonathan who spent an hour just talking about that and asking questions, getting people to think and, you know, understanding relationships and having a best friend and, and what the scriptures can teach us about that sort of a relationship. And so the, my lessons were, they were never <laughs> what you would expect. They're never what I would expect. I just sit there, you know, read the scriptures, the same thing that I would, I do with my podcast. Now, whatever I'm thinking about, that's, what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> mm. Mm. And I think at its best, that's what's brilliant about how church can be and sometimes is that that by having mass participation, by taking turns being the speaker, the sermonizer, the teacher, we yeah. hear so many, you know, you have the potential to hear from so many different opinions. And part of the tragedy that a lot of people who are becoming disillusioned lament is the loss of that now, that everything yeah. is so standardized and correlated. And Come Follow Me just finds all the most boring bits of the scriptures rather than the real meat. And they're, and they're really intense about you must not talk about these other things. You've just got to stick with this curriculum now. Mm -hmm. And it's a real loss. You know, we're losing our intellectual breadth. We're losing our ability to have those wonderful conversations um it, it you know we're losing our religion because of that and and as you say people just love it when they can learn something new and not just repeat what everyone said before since primary um that's what it should be about bringing together all of our different perspectives and ideas but it's become so paranoid now that if you do that these days you you can really kick up a storm people react and get quite uh -huh. hostile because most of the in certainly in our our zone, most of the liberal-minded people who could cope with that and thrive on it have gone. Yeah. So you're left with the people who don't, and they become the dominant percentage in the room. And it's it's a real change. Things have, there's a chill sort of come on using your mind at church. But I just think, but we know from our own experience, if you bring it with interest and new perspectives, people love it. They are also craving oh, yeah. it. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that was, and you know, what a pull that come follow me, Manuel, back into the conversation again just shortly. But yeah, Scott, that's kind of your story. Like, how come you're not still there? Because although you've got, <laughs> come on, you've got meds now that are supporting you, yes. and you know how to nuance it. You know how to set boundaries. You know how to do things <laughs> the right way. Yeah, come on, what the hell happened, man? So, <laughs> such a good question. Um, so it came to a head because it came to a point where I, I could not, for a long time, I could not sit through elders quorum. Um, it was just so hard. Um, nothing against these men. They're saying what they believe. They're talking about religion in a way that, that makes sense to them. But, um, it was stifling because I just disagreed with so much what they were saying. And I'm, I don't like contention. I'm very like anti-contention. And so I just wouldn't say anything. Like, even if I disagreed with them, like vehemently, I'd just, you know, lean over to my best friend, like, Oh, you know, this is what they said. And this is, you know, da, da, da. this is why I disagree. And then eventually those conversations, those whispered conversations, 
we just had those in the hallway. <laughs> so my one of my closest friends, I've mm-hmm. actually brought him onto my podcast. Um, his name is Paul. He and I would have what we called foyer class. And he and I would sit in the foyer during the third hour at this time because it was still the three-hour block. We would sit in the foyer for the third hour and we would have really in-depth conversations about scripture, about church history, and being like really honest with church history. We'd, we'd talk about mental health. We'd talk about this, a full range of things. And it, it attracted attention. Um, some of the other elders would come and sit with us and they, you know, we'd bring them into this conversation. Um, and some of my all-time favorite conversations that I've had within the church's walls were in those conversations where we had, you know, five or six grown men yeah. talking about mm. depression and oh. helping each other to cope and like recognizing that, yeah, this life sucks a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, yeah. Alana and I have had exactly the same experience. Exactly. That's awesome. And I think um what mm-hmm. I think how it probably kind of started was um <laughs> I'm just gonna share this. There was something yeah. really inappropriate that a teacher once shared in um Relief Society that was so bad. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so absolutely outrageous to be shared in a Relief Society class. So bad, I can't even repeat it on air. It's that bad. Um, what? Really? Oh, yes, you can. Come on. No. You can whisper it or like type it out. Priesthood Dispatches specializes in this stuff. I'll tell him and let him filter it. But we, so <laughs> we had to um, either sit and not laugh or make our way out to the foyer gradually, one by oh. one, just so we could crack up. And um, in the weeks that followed, you know, I, I, yeah, we started more and more people started to just realize, oh, hey, we can, we can do that. In this case, it was because that was pretty, you know, that was funny, yeah. that was horrific, that was let's all process. But we realized <laughs> that suddenly the power was there that we could leave the classroom, and mm-hmm. you know, we would we would use the example, you know, the spirits out there in the foyer. To amazing things were happening in the foyer. Cool. The conversations with people who could not go into the classroom because it was so traumatic. Now, um, yeah. were suddenly empowered to do it, and those conversations, the real conversations, things got real in the foyer and then you would have leaders who would be coming trying to shoo everyone back into class <laughs> that was one of the things that really annoyed me because there was this one specific leader now I'm a grown adult woman and as the other people mm. could we ask you to go to your classes please and I just wanted to say well you can't ask but I'm going to tell you no it was like <laughs> my most spiritual experiences happened in that foyer I had more of a church experience in that foyer than I did in the classes because oh, like yeah. We were talking about real things, real issues, you know, things that were affecting real people and not just the typical doctrine that we spoke about in class. Uh, and it was incredible to tell the story. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I can. Um, <laughs> this is my husband. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. He's a nevermore. Okay. Um, 
it's your own fault for never having joined the church. Uh, so are you <laughs> choices and consequences? I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> Charlie's patiently waiting for us to get to the Star Wars stuff. This okay. is stuff that's probably going to get me excommunicated from my family. <laughs> well, let me answer your question because I didn't quite yes, get there please. when I mentioned yes, Florida. Please. So <clears throat> my I've got three children and one of my my last because I've since you know you know step step had a vasectomy. Um, my last child, um, she was born during the pandemic, and I was I had long since deconstructed religion, but I was still attending with my wife. During the pandemic, I stopped attending or I stopped you know doing the online church. But her baby blessing was coming up, and we were putting it off, and we were putting it off. And also, my oldest, he is um, he's nine now, but he was turning eight. Um, so his baptism was also coming up and I think the Bishop had an inkling that I no longer believed. Um, and so he, he called me in before the blessing and the baptism and he kind of asked me candidly and perhaps I was too honest, but I, I laid out exactly where I stood with religion. And at that point, and you know, still where I stand now, I, I'm not convinced that the Judeo-Christian God exists, and I and I'm okay with that. But I wanted to participate because I find value in the ritual. I find value the ritual of blessing and introducing a baby to your community. I find value in a baptizing, baptism, a coming of age. You know, he's no longer a child now; he's a young young adult, and he's going to be yeah. taking these steps. Like I, I find spiritual value in them apart from what the religion strictly teaches. Um, and so I wanted to participate and, and I asked him if I still could. And it, the way I phrased it and the way I looked at it was I'm still obeying all of the commandments, living an exact Mormon life. I just don't believe. And he made the decision that that wasn't enough for me to participate. And so that was, when I decided to step away. Mm. And so I wasn't actively talking to anybody, trying to get anybody out or to agree with me. I was supporting my wife and believing my own way. And we were making it work. We made it work for a long while. And uh, mm. perhaps I was just too honest. But that was the catalyst that brought me out of the church. I had multiple conversations with the bishop. I had some really bad conversations with the stake president. I, like I said, I was in the, the stake young men's at the time. So I knew of him and, my family's from this area. So he knew my family and my brother had previously served in the state in state callings with this guy. Um, so he comes to our house and we had some really bad conversations so much that my wife is like in tears when they're leaving. And just after that, I was like, you know what? I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not good for me. And it's not good for my family. I still support my wife. She is active. She believes very, I, I will say she's nuanced. She doesn't have a belief in everything, um, but it's where she finds spiritual fulfillment. And I think that's amazing. You know, I support her in whatever brings her the most happiness. Mm -hmm. I love that. But what that's kind great. of impact did it have on, on you? Because <laughs> let's face it, that sounds hell of a healthy right you just it, you made a decision yeah did it come with any background? you know my let me let me put it this way my wife has described this to me 
Um, and the reason that she was able to get through a lot of this, like religious deconstruction stuff is she, she talks about how hard it was to live with me when I was going through my darkest moments and how she loved me and she helped work with me through all of those times, really some really scary times. And she loved me and she worked with me through all of that. And she's like, this is nothing compared to the depression that you went through. <laughs> I laugh because if I don't, I would cry. Um, <laughs> so she, she had already gone through so much and she loved me so much that a faith change was just, you know, the next step. And it, mm-hmm. through the depression, we reevaluated why we're together. And those reasons didn't change because I stopped believing. Some of the healthiest things that I've been able to see, um, especially amongst the men that I've spoken to who've been through a a faith deconstruction, is when you have some kind of creative or, I think in, in your case, Peter, teaching, you know, that kind of outlet where you your spirituality is actually just taking a different form. Um, mm. how, how has the podcast, um, <laughs> how, how has that sort of shaped where, where you are right now? Yeah. Deciding to do a podcast is, is <laughs> well, it's, so not, look, it's not what a therapist would necessarily say, have you thought about <clears throat> starting a podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> how did you get there? Yeah, so... A couple of things led up to it, and I'll try and go as quickly as I can through it because we've got to get to Star Wars. Um, I have always been an avid reader. Um, I love movies and comics and video games and just any medium that there's a story that's compelling, I will just devour it, whatever it is. Um, and that's where I found my spirituality, even as a member of the church. I just didn't know it, right? I just didn't. I didn't make that connection that that was what was feeding my soul and not attending the, um, the chapel. Um, and so that has always been a part of me. Um, then building off of that, you know, I, this love of literature and discussing movies and books and all those things. I, most nights, my wife and I, we sit down, we have these long conversations, um, long, you know, we're both tired, wrangling the kids. We're ready for bed, but we have these pretty deep conversations most nights. And for a long time, I was chatting almost exclusively about the church. And oh my goodness, did you know what such and such person did at so and you know at so and so event? And I'm just like info dumping on her, <laughs> like a wide variety of things. Where it came to the point where she's just like, "Look, I get that you don't believe. I still do. You know, I agree with some of the things that you're saying, but I don't want to talk about this anymore." And she's like, she just was done. She was done talking about it. But I had so much more I wanted to say. Like every time I learn something new, I'm just like, this makes my mind go this way or that way. And I just, I just, if I don't say it, I might explode. And so I needed an outlet. And then the other part of it, I actually am part of another podcast. So I I had all the equipment, all the gear, you know, the audio editing, the microphone, like everything I needed to run a podcast. And quick plug for that, I do a an actual play D&D podcast with a bunch of my friends. Um, also been going out for about a year and a half in that ballpark. Um, so much fun. 12-sided guys, if you like D&D, check it out. It's a blast. So I had all the stuff. 
We will yeah. stick a link in, but do you want to... For, so Alana is as far removed from geekness as you can possibly get. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. this is, this is so yeah. do you want to... So the best way... Explain d and I will do it in one what sentence. What is D&D? forced to do this before. Dungeons & Dragons is collaborative storytelling. Everyone sits around a table. There's one person that is doing the setting and all of the minor characters. Then everyone else at the table is a main character. But the things that you try and do, they're only successful if you can roll the dice well enough. And it's just that. It's collaborative storytelling. And I've always loved storytelling and I'm so passionate about just everything that has to do with, with the human condition. And that's why I resonate with Dungeons and Dragons. And so the same guy that I mentioned from foyer class, he is the dungeon master in this group. And he and I have played D and D together for years. Um, one of my best friends. And frankly, I probably wouldn't have deconstructed religion as quickly if it weren't for him. Because he was going down that same exact path, um, just a little bit ahead of me. And he helped me make some of the connections that I just, my brain hadn't quite gotten to. Um, anyway, so I, I have D&D to thank for part of my religious deconstruction. Um, yeah, anyway. can, I, can I just yeah. bear testimony of that? So at school, I'm the, I'm the teacher godfather of our D&D &D club. Oh my goodness, I, I've that's I've never fantastic. played it in my life. <laughs> But we have some amazing kids, like, uh, you know, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds. Yeah. We've now got three dungeon masters going. They've gathered wow. together these little clusters of of really random humans, <laughs> and they <laughs> love it. And it, I've started listening in properly. It's incredible. You're absolutely right. I had no idea they had so much autonomy in where the stories go. And yeah. they're buzzing. They're using their imaginations. They're thinking through scenarios. They're having an absolute blast um, yeah. using their imaginations. It's it's literature, it's role play, it's social skills, it's strategy, it's mm -hmm. dealing with you know life throwing random things that you can't control. Yeah. It's, it's mathematics. It's I'm logic. so impressed with it. So yes. much. Yeah. It's absolutely. I just, just anyone who's nervous about their kids doing Dungeons and Dragons, just throw them at it. They will learn yeah. so many skills at once. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. Yeah. One of the ways I was helping my kids learn math is I run a game yes. with children, and uh -huh. they have to roll the dice, and then they look at their character sheet, and their character sheet tells them what numbers to add to the dice. And so it, you know, it, it's just like these really simple math. But for a five and a six year old, you know, or, you know, as you know, my son's eight now, it's it's really good repetition for them to start thinking mathematically. And yeah, I totally agree. My uh, youngest son has um, he's doing the whole D&D &D thing. And awesome. uh, what started him off was uh, Mag Magic the Gathering, sort of all the, the sort of cards um, building a world from there. And what I've noticed in that community is, you know, he he was he was a very young kid. He he would have been maybe about um, eleven, something like that. And he was looking for a community to play with, and it was all sort of grown ass adults, you know, upper age <laughs> teens to yeah. you know sixty year old men. Um, and and we would go to this cafe where sort of I'm sitting in the corner as he's totally welcomed and supported into this little community. And 
previous sort of mental health uh, difficulties that he was having with expressing emotion and just processing anger, things like that. Um, totally gone over the years. It's, it's a very mentally healthy experience for him. So I would also Definitely. give a shout out to that yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic yeah i uh, i love all the local game gaming stores it's a blast so we'll buy you a book alana get you started <laughs> <laughs> so you that's started awesome. the podcast and yeah so i i started the podcast well i recorded a couple of episodes actually the first three episodes that i published um i recorded them and i'm like okay what do i do now I mean, I knew how to publish a podcast. I knew um, basically everything because I, I produce along with my friend, Matt, we produce the, the 12-sided guys podcast. So I knew how to edit it. I knew where to upload it, how to host all that stuff. But I Dungeons and Dragons is like a very different audience than ex-Mormonism. So I reached out to Bill Real and I just, I just shot him a message to say, hey, I'm Scott. You don't know me. I have a couple questions. I'd love to ask you. you know, I'm interested in entering this um, podcasting sphere, but don't feel any obligation. You know, if, if all you get from this is, is just listening to me for a sec, thank you so much for all you do. You know, it's that sort of thing. You know, I, I love your work. I'm so grateful for everything you've done for me. You know, the end to the message. He messages me back shortly and he's like, yeah, I'd love to chat. So we have a fairly long phone conversation afterwards. And by the end of it, he's just like, show me what you got. Send me a, a link to, to what you recorded. And, I might bring you on to the to the brand. And I mean, the rest is history. So I sent him those first three. We talked about it for a minute. Um, I had actually already got my logo before I even chatted with him because I, I knew that I was going to do it. I just wasn't quite ready yet. Um, and even the name. <laughs> I have, again, this, this close friend of mine, Paul. Um, I have him to thank for the name. But originally, it was going to be ruminations from my Ramiumptum. But I changed it to nations. <laughs> Sounds like a medical condition. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was. I mean, it's a bit tongue in cheek, and but I don't, I don't feel like it matched the tone that I wanted to set, and so I changed it. The name yeah. is awesome. The name is is genius, <laughs> and I, again, it's it's an appeal to sort of um, wherever you're at with Mormonism. Um, I'm going to ask, would you, so my favorite episode um, okay. Okay. so far is where you talk about Laban and you talk oh, about. Oh, just, uh, just last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, that's, that one, that, that really sat with me for a while. Would you, could you give us sort of a, a, a notes version of. Yeah, I, that? the way I, th and, and this is just me applying the way I look at literature to the scriptures. Um, oftentimes when, when I read a book or watch a movie, I like to think about the villain and their perspective because to them, they are not a villain. They're the main character and, you know, whether they're fallen or making bad choices, they're still the main character in their experience. And so I come to the story of Laban and I'm like, okay, Laban is the main character. He's, he's in his mind, the good guy. What does that look like? And what does that change about this story? And what does that mean? You know, he's this, he's the main character. He's now standing in front of God to be judged. You know, if, if that's me, if that were my life that I lived, what would I say to God? Or what would my 
what would my reaction to that be? And so I brought up some of the questions, you know, and, and they're, they're ideas that I'd presented before, but I'd never presented them in, like concisely, like a story like this. Um, the, the easy um, contradiction here is, is yeah, Laban, maybe he had made some mistakes, but Nephi who killed him was commanded to do those evil things to bring about good. And so it, it creates this moral dilemma that I, I love because suddenly Nephi is doing bad things, but he's still good. But Laban probably did good things in his life, you know, if he were a real person. Sure, he did great things. You know, maybe he was an excellent father and, you know, treated his kids with perfect kindness. But he's getting judged as this like evil, vile person because he didn't want to give the scriptures to Nephi. And, and what does that look like? What does that mean for his judgment? Yeah. Could, and it uh, raises uh, such big questions. You know, people talk about what, what, a, well, was Judas Iscariot set up? Does there have to be a yeah. Judas? In which case, in religions that believe in foreordination and predestination, why was God setting him up? And, and again, with Lucifer and in Mormonism, we have a much more elaborate narrative around yeah. Lucifer about his fall and so on. And to, where, and to the point where we're taught in the temple that you always have to have a Lucifer. There has to be this adversary for the yeah. choice and for the opposition or things. Well, um, and that concept then, right there creates a really how, important Where's the ethics? Yeah. 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 Like if, yeah. if Lucifer was necessary for the plan, then he was following the plan mm. in rebelling and doing what God wanted mm. by not following God. Mm. And so suddenly he's... Yeah. doing what he's supposed to do but what he's supposed to do isn't right and how it isn't good if you will how is that any different from nephi being commanded to murder and he's killing someone he's doing something that's objectively wrong but god told him to yeah. so how is satan any different than that he is leading people astray but that's exactly what god wants him to isn't it so fun? And <laughs> I mean, it's only people's actual lives and judgment, and you know, we're comparing everything to our own lives. What really rocked my world this week, and this is my segue into Star Wars. Okay. okay. Is, um, and I'm going to segue into Star Wars via Under the Banner of Heaven. Oh. Those t- I'm sorry. I know everyone's talking about it, but it hasn't landed in Talk the about game. it. It's fantastic. So what most people um, who are desperate to see it over here, I think, have found a way to see it. Not me. I will not do it. I'm very familiar with the case um, and the, you know, and, and the book and stuff. But it does, you know, conversations like this that have a natural veer towards blood atonement and, you know, God ordering the killing of people. Yeah. We were in... I, I was in Sunday school this, this week, um, which isn't where I normally get to be. And we were talking about um, we were talking about the law of the Sabbath, and the "Come Follow Me" manual just kind of alludes to oh, we don't do that anymore. But at the time, if you broke the Sabbath, it was a capital crime. Mm-hmm. And to my heartbreaking disappointment, we then start getting comments about how justified that is in this context. Because the people of Israel were a stiff-necked people, and that was that was the law. And 
the fact that this argument has been used in anti-Semitic rhetoric for years, the consequences of us sitting, stroking our beards in Sunday school, coming out with these <laughs> extremely problematic opinions, yeah. it just shocks me. So what I would suggest is, I guess my segue to, to Star Wars is this. When it turns out, um, I think we'll maybe put a, a, a link to the clip, but there's there's a, a, a comedy sort of clip that goes around the internet where two Nazis are looking at each other and they're speaking, they're saying, are we the bad guys? <laughs> so I want to that moment where, yes. about, the, about the Jedi, about it, it's Star Wars Day, Um. I grew up seeing a narrative of Star Wars like most people when it first came out. The good guys hold the blue lightsabers. The bad guys hold the red lightsabers. And I'm aware that this is all complete news to Alana, who just doesn't... <laughs> doesn't. We're, we're going to... In my defence, I have watched a Star Wars movie, so I'm not completely... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's not anything. Yeah, but... We're, we're going to go deeper. We're going to. It was a lot, a lot of years ago. So mm. <laughs> this, is going to, this is going to go in a way that my husband is, is, has already told me, and my teenager. They're not happy. They're not happy about this at all. Um, so we went from good guys and bad guys to when the the story is developed further, we start to see problems that have helped me to see problems with. Hold on. Is this hero Obi Wan Kenobi a complete douche? This is awful stuff that you are doing. So, I have lost my faith in the Jedi, and I want to know <laughs> how can I get back to having confidence <laughs> that these are actually good guys? <laughs> and I'm not going to be ashamed of the more so, parallels we're chucking in here. But Peter, yeah. go tell me what you think. <laughs> Well, you've you've broke my world today. Um, so you know, I'm also having a Jedi face deconstruction live in this podcast, <laughs> just from our, our pre two text messages, which does show how quickly things can crash for religion. Um, and is it? Did we have thirty thousand Jedi's in the last census in Britain? I'm not sure there's yes. a big thing that a lot of people <laughs> declared their religion to be Jedi. That's so, fantastic. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of people. My on. husband <laughs> was one so, of them. Um... <laughs> I love it. I love it. Brilliant. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we are talking about real religion here, everyone. Um, so, but but things you said is, oh, my gosh, you've got um, – my initial salvo was, well, they're racist because you're either born a Jedi or not. It depends on your midichlorians, on your genetics. Yeah. It's and, almost um, ableist. Like, so in, some people have it, other yes. people don't. Yeah. And there's nothing you can yeah. do. Yeah. And then they take children away from parents and disconnect them from their families. And then Jane just broke me with her well, list. Before you go there, like, why, why are they taken away from their families? control and... Well, because I think they've got. Oh. I think a yeah. problem with this is that they have they have this concept of non-attachment that's real similar to um, you know Buddhism or some of these Buddhism, yeah. Um, but they've taken it a step too far, and I think maybe it's a problem with with the way George Lucas wrote it. But 
it's almost like they misunderstand what non-attachment is and it creates a fundamental problem with the organization. The way they interpret non-attachment is you're not allowed to have attachments. But really what non-attachment means is you have attachments, love people, enjoy your life, but recognize that those attachments will end. And that's the concept of non-attachment. Mm. Everything will end. Our relationships will change. You know, the, the marriage I have with my wife now is different than what it was 10 years ago. So this, mm. this concept of non-attachment and who knows, you know, 30, 40 years, maybe we get divorced and it's better for both of us. Non-attachment means love the people you love, enjoy your life the way it is, but recognize that it can and might possibly change in the future. So the way the Jedi have interpreted it is that they've gone way too far. And I think that that if they're going to change, they need to bring that back to a more healthy balance. Fundamentalism. And they show um, Anakin, yeah, and they show Anakin being broken because he is still attached to his mother and hasn't resolved yeah. his issues, and it, and it all all leads to hatred and rage. So well, in a way, maybe there's well, we there's a larger that. message there. But oh, totally, yeah. Well, well, yeah they're, so, they're- yeah. According to the Jedi, yeah, they would have disconnected him from his mother sooner so that that mm. wouldn't have been. And so mm. when we see all these little Jedi kids in training, it's yeah, mm. that's really creepy to look at. It's not, it doesn't look <laughs> healthy, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, going to this, one of the things, and I think I think Yoda at some point during his exile made this connection. Is when he is talking, and this is in some of the, the, the newer movies. When he's talking to mm. Luke about the the Jedi records that Luke has kept, he told him to burn them. And then, you know, spoiler alert, Yoda calls down lightning and burns down this Jedi temple and gets rid of everything that they had done in the past, almost as a way to rewrite it. And he's saying, you know, what we did was wrong. It led to some really bad things. We need to start over. And mm. And I really liked that, you know, that decision for the story. Almost, you know, they recognized that they just they just really screwed up and they needed to wipe the slate clean. And to have that come from the Grand Master, you know, the one that when everything went down, he was the the wisest and the best Jedi to have him recognize that it was flawed. I think that's beautiful. It, it, it is. Um, and <laughs> so my husband, my my kid, um, all my kids have um they lap this stuff up so i i believe is it two days in two days we've got the new ben kenobi series that's coming out on disney uh, plus isn't it the 20th I, I think it's the 20th a new trailer dropped Ooh. this morning but i think the new show comes out um so it's super super soon right yeah um, it's real soon. Like, it's this, this is important stuff <laughs> i was wrong may 25th so we've got a couple weeks Okay, so we okay, so we do. Um, if we were to, Peter, what I said to you in comments was based on one film and one character, and it's one that you know it's it's the one that most people have seen. So why would that have broken you? Talk about what happened. Well, you to when all of it is evil. So you're talking about how. Obi-Wan lies to Luke, like repeatedly, withholds information, tells him lies about who his father is, um, gets other people to lie to him, um, watches over him with a destiny, like already has a life plan mapped out for him in a sense um, that he must sort of eventually fulfill. 
And there's a lot of stuff about Destiny there. Then you got all the mind control stuff. The Jedi just turn up to do mind control. And then I was like, oh, yeah, and they take the babies away to them and teach them to kill people, like, with pretty dispassionately, <laughs> just become mass murderers with lightsabers. You've you've ruined my life, Jane. Celebrity. I mean, seriously. Well, but I, the, the but, but I'm coming this. through it. A celebrity, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. You'll love it. Um, but the, I think one thing where you're talking about um, and where there's these, there's so many wonderful parallels with sort of deconstructing Mormonism and so on or any religion is um, that Ray saves the books. So, you know, there's this yeah. little moment when they're on the Millennium Falcon and she's somehow she's grabbed all the books, the original yeah. scriptures, and they didn't go up in flames in the temple and she's holding on to them. And there's so much worry and positivity about that. The positive is, well, she can do what she wants with them, you know, and we can relate to our scriptures how we choose to or see our own way of valuing them, even if older generations have, have lost that sense or they view it very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also that I do, you know, I just think of, um, you know, how, um, uh, Oh, what's the face? Exmo Joe, whatever, has kind of been broken by doing the the Mormon stories interviews with Rod Meldrum, who's part of this uber traditional verging on Desnat, um, you know, heartland theory fundamentalist Mormonism that is yeah, not coping with the modern world or or anything or science, um, and and just how they, in a sense, have snatched the scriptures from the burning temple. They see the Burning Temple as the historians, the apologists, even some of the apostles yeah. accepting real history and so on. And they want to hold on to their fundamentalist religion. And that is more true to them even than history and the scriptures. Um, and you just see how dangerous this is, how how ideologies and religions like the Jedi can fragment in all kinds of directions. You've got the dark sides of everything. You've got new manif- and and the same things play out throughout history. So you have now building up in Star Wars a narrative of a recurrence of the new Vaders coming forward. You know the 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 new empire and and the constant struggle and recycling old ideas. How they get over idealist over idealized. And you've got all the struggles of, of um, uh, oh, what's his name? I'm, I'm forgetting everyone's name. I've got my list here. Of um, uh, Leia and Han's son, who is sort of trying to reconnect with his grandfather, Darth Vader. Yeah, Kylo Ren. And um, so I think there's actually, it's getting quite juicy from a, a philosophical and theological point of view, you know, that... Yeah. These things are, but it is, it set up a narrative that seems very simple of what's ethically good or bad. And the writers have intentionally now deconstructed that in quite radical ways. Um, and we're seeing how that all plays out now. Um, yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of parallel there. But then it also perhaps, I mean, one thought for me that, you know, I've sort of been flippantly commenting, like, if I need morality tales and stories to inspire me and teach me how to be good um i can get that from from the narnia stories and some shakespeare and lord of the rings i don't need mormonism where i also have to take on board giving my money to go into the american stock market having most of my time taken away for busy work intense sexual shaming from before puberty begins 
and and all the other bollocks, you know, and tea being enough to keep you out of heaven. Um, I love the word wisdom, by the way, but still it's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, and ju- just, you know, you, we can get these stories from other places. And if, if the LDS church is going to survive, it has to rediscover some much meatier philosophy and deep content mm. to compete. Because while it's being shallow and all it's offering is these stories, um, which are increasingly questioned of, as we deconstruct the Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon and where they even came from, um, you, there is deep and great philosophy there. It, it is salvageable, but unfortunately the system has created, um, uh, a, I don't know, structures of power that promote to ultimate power the people least equipped to even understand what they are. Hence, they're now teaching the opposite of those fundamental principles. Hence the civil war. Um, so I, do, I think you know if if Mormonism is going to come back, it has to be able to have these discussions. We have to take the the real religion back out of exile, back out of the foyer, and put it back in the classroom. Yeah, and because it's all there, we are taught to think deeply, but then forbidden to. It's maddening. <laughs> it's just yeah. self, so to, stupid self sabotage. Yeah. To bring it back to Star Wars a little bit, like right what you're saying, it's almost this misinterpretation Mm. of what the point of these scriptures and the point of these stories is. I think that the Jedi Mm. misinterpreted this destiny. Um, All of this stock in the prequels was put on Anakin to be this great balancing force. You know, he was the promised, the chosen Mm. one. He was going to bring balance to the force. And they were so upset when he went to the dark side and killed everybody. But that... Mm brought balance to the force prior to that mm-hmm. the sith had this rule of two where there was only two sith master you know a sith master and an mm-hmm. apprentice but the jedi they had influence all over the galaxy and there was an imbalance in the force where there was much more good than there was bad so along comes anakin later darth vader kills all the jedi now suddenly it's a few jedi and a few sith and balance was restored mm-hmm. So if we're going to relate that right back to Mormonism, like we're talking about, much of what... We should kill everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe D&D isn't a good idea. (laughs) What has it done to you, Scott? You know, it's... um, (laughs) I actually right now play a character who is going through a similar moral dilemma where he's making a choice not to kill anybody (laughs) right now in the story. Anyway, a lot of fun. But uh, no, to bring this back to Mormonism... um, much of what we understand is misinterpreted and there's so much that we're constantly like relearning or looking at through a new lens for the first time and seeing it in a different way where i i think that what the jedi order needed was to be completely broken down and in order for it to be rebuilt as a better organization i think this had to happen and that was this rebalancing I, I agree. And to bring it back, though, just to the really simple stuff about the ethics of the Jedi, um, good and bad, we can see clearly um, from the, you know, what a, achievement people are, are hoping to, to, to get from following a Jedi path to following the dark side. There's, there, uh, there are issues with emotions and inevitably if you feel anger that is evil that that will lead you to evil um so there isn't a healthy processing of that which we currently see reflected in the church today and could there be could we could we see more effective jedi uh, or you know not going to 
just full on evil killing people mode where um Anakin allowed to feel his feelings and and love and experience all of those natural things in a healthy way. Um but I think since um coming into this space over the past, you know, sort of what has it been 10 years, I've never heard a movie line quoted as much amongst the Mormon community as these aren't the droids you're looking for. And <laughs> that simple, um, your own history is too much for you to handle. So I'm not going to tell you fundamentally that everyone else knows about you and your birth and you know, where you come from. I'm not going to tell you what I know about the consequences that will inevitably have for you and that you're going to have this massive deconstruction when eventually you find out. Um, mm. But this idea of lying for some higher purpose or 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 also, you know, I, I, we were having a conversation, my kids and I, the other day, and um, these aren't the droids you're looking for. It was the only way that they could survive. They, they, they had to get past this point and or they would have been arrested. Bad things would have happened. So there's good reasons to manipulate someone's mind if it's for the right reason. So if I lose faith in the Jedi, it's for those types of reasons. Can I regain that faith? Can it be made better? Is it, or is it fundamental to being a Jedi? To not feel emotion and to lie if it's for a really good reason. There's a lot of parallels with, to, to that with how the church is operating. Right. Um, you know, lying when it's beneficial to the organization, you know, hiding things, you know, the, the decisions that they make. It, it's the It's very utilitarian. It's doing whatever it takes to do the most good for the most people. And if doing something bad will bring about the most good, then it's okay. And so that's a, that's a code of ethics that people follow and mm. it's something that people do, whether that's right or wrong. I don't think that's, I couldn't say, but that that's, that's how they would justify that sort of behavior because it's going to bring out more good by doing a little bad. Peter, what do you think? Something that really struck me, yeah, something that really struck me with the prequels was it felt like there was a shift to where the the Jedi just didn't seem to have any emotion. They were very callous. They just go into situations quite cynically. They'd manipulate political situations on planets they're going to. They kind of they know how it's all going to play out and they're playing a role. So there's a lot of that sort of Buddhist self awareness and detachment. But all through the first three movies, everyone's very passionate. They're they're experiencing emotion. They're they're doing things for for virtuous reasons, and it felt like that humanity had been kind of sucked out of it. Um, and in a way, the humanity that's come up with the sequels from the original three or four, um, it it seems to be exploring more of the dark side of things um, and, and getting more raw and complex, you know, and obviously we, you know, they, it, it's, it's somewhat disjointed and Disney's got hold of it and put stupid cutesy things with little sweeps with, <laughs> you know, at the race course looking yeah. at the sky, which was just ridiculous. That was awful. Um, but, but I think, uh, yeah, I think the, but by, it, it did, in a way, feel like how how oblivious a lot of church members can be to the harm they cause, their indifference to other people's mm -hmm. suffering, because they've got this higher purpose in their head. 
that they ignore the people they're trampling on and the ethics they're trampling on to get to their end results, to get the numbers, to get the right person yeah. in power, to manipulate cynically a, a global power situation. And I see that a lot in how when when they are vaguely competent, the church leaders sort of think and behave. Yeah. My other thing really is that, and the analogy I use in the podcast a lot, sorry, you make your point, Scott. No, I was just going to say right along with what you were saying, the in the prequels the jedi order had become an extension of the galactic senate where they were police Mm. force they were politicians basically everything they did Mm. had nothing to do with balance everything that they were doing was to Mm. make sure that the current order stayed in power Mm. and you know they did do good things that that isn't just that they didn't have good missions and they were doing other things that Mm. that brought about good but their ultimate goal was to Mm. support the galactic senate and I think that was fundamentally flawed because, you know, unbeknownst to them, you know, you had Darth Sidious coming up and taking over the whole thing mm-hmm. right under their noses. And so it was this big evil that mm-hmm. they were just unaware of because mm-hmm. they had drifted away from, from working at balance for the universe and they were just balancing the Senate. Mm-hmm. Mm. and that and that for me is the most powerful parallel to the church sorry go on jane no that that's it i apologize i've got a slight time delay so i interrupt people that's okay peter um the the militarization of you know the i i I guess i'm just hearing call to serve him and you know all of these (laughs) the whole zion's camp concept yeah and I, i associate jedi with peace and I don't know exactly where that came from. Um, that was that was just what I saw the good guys as being. Peter, carry on. Yeah, I think. Um, but I think what does come through is, in general, their motivations are on the good side, and the best people are the ones who rally to their cause and find them inspiring because they are about life, and you know they they've got political realism, but ultimately they're trying to promote democracy. You know. Um, and that is what the Senate's about. You know, it's meant to be a, a reasonably, but any democratic system can be corrupted. Um, so, but I'm I think for, that. for me, one of the most, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the most powerful and, and something I reference a lot in my podcasts, I keep talking about this Sith arrangement that you only need a couple who dominate a system and infiltrate Ah. it and are ruthless, that you don't need a whole network of people. You literally need a leader and the next person to inherit. Mm -hmm. And that is, you can trace this through the history of the church in the 20th century. Um, George Hugh Cannon, who I want to learn a lot more about, um, apparently it wasn't actually that religious. He didn't turn up for his own kids' baptisms and he was off doing politics a lot of the time, wow. but he was a big high status sort of figure. So when they managed to persuade him to come and be an apostle, he was like a great catch. And we know that how that messed up Joseph Smith earlier on with some of the great catches he brought into apostleship and they yeah. turned out to be terrible, um, like Bennett and others. Um, mm-hmm. And then you, but racist, anti-Semitic, you know, yeah. And then you have Joseph Fielding Smith, and then passing on to his son-in-law Bruce R. McConkie with McConkie Mormonism, this certainty, this fundamentalism. Uh, on to Ezra Taft Benson with intense politicized um, control freakery, Boyd K. Packer, who 
and and then on to Dallin Oaks now, and then Bednar, and then I've just been pointing out Jorg Klebingat. You know, his his full on Desnat manifesto in the last general yeah. conference was extraordinary. Um, and and I think one of the most in, amazing moments, little insights we get, is this presentation that Boyd K. Packer gave to the All Church Coordinating Council in 1993, just months before he started going for it and excommunicated the September 6th. Yeah. And we have the text of his talk. I mean, th- this shows how incompetent they are, because if they had any sense, no one would ever have been able to read this thing, because in it, he bullies all of the other apostles. And it's a classic case of where Ezra Taft Benson's basically in a coma, and if you look at church history, repeatedly the, the fanatics make their move when the king is weak or dying. So boy, uh, Bruce Armaconkey got but Mormon's, um, sorry, Mormon doctrine republished as David O. McKay was dying and kind of barged his way in to get permission from this dying man to republish after it had been, they put the kibosh on it because it wasn't yeah. Mormon doctrine. Um, yeah. And this was a classic case of Boyd K. Packer taking his moments. Um, and Dallin Oaks has done the same. As soon as Thomas S. Monson was incapacitated, Dallin got up at the pulpit and started with his plan talks doubling down on homophobia and this new version of the religion where this church is not about the poor and the lost sheep and the sinners. It's just here to service the elite going to the celestial kingdom through the temple. Um, And it's this repeating cycle. But what has staggered me is how you only need one or two people to do that and assertively, and they dominate, they bully. They're so fanatically certain of their will that the more moderates don't compete because they don't have such a clear and obvious message. They're not going to fight. They're not fighters. They're naive. And he, in this talk, you can find it if you Google Boyd K. Packer, Church Coordinating Council 1993. Um, he basically says, we have to double down on a hard line. Mm-hmm. I hear all these letters and he quotes them from the three categories, from intellectuals, from a homosexual and from a woman in the church who's yeah. had an abusive marriage. And like the three categories, feminism, sexism, sorry, and sexism, um, the intellectual, you know, truth about history, crowd, and LGBTQ people. Yeah. And he acknowledges their pain, but he says to them, we have to be tough. We will minister to these people and their exceptional needs in private, but we must not ever compromise our public messaging. It must always be strict boundary policing, no nuance, no otherwise everyone, because they treat all the members like children, like unruly children. If we show any weakness, they'll all go off and sin, and that's the end of the church, you know. And mm-hmm. and he he specifically says to Thomas S. Monson, you won't like this, what I'm about to say, because he knows, because you're so compassionate. And then he says, but I know, I'm sure you have never said that we shouldn't keep the laws of God. And then he claims to know what the laws of God are, which don't in his world include grace, repent, forgiveness, or compassion. It's holding the line for the rules. Um, And we can read it. You can actually read the guy doing this to the whole team. It is Palpatine revealing himself in the Senate and taking over. Um, I mean, it's all there. I mean, it's amazing. It's really dramatic if you're nerding out on Mormonism. But it is that, that so I love Star Wars in offering us that, that image of the, the very few, the Sith Lord and his apprentice, 
mm-hmm. um, or the master passing on that that evil ideology and being ruthless. Um, and you can absolutely track it through this minority of apostles who've ended up, they, but they wrote all the books. Joseph Fielding Smith, absolutely certain evolution is a lie. So he insists from his position of power that his books are the curriculum for seminary and institute throughout the first half of the 20th century. And then his son-in-law, Bruce Armaconkey, picks up and does the same for our generation growing up. Two people who who were uneducated. I mean, Joseph Fielding Smith had no education, partly through tragedy. You know, his, his... father was martyr you know his grandfather was you know he grew up in a cattle herding basically like his dad and and among other things and um it's just so that is how star wars really speaks to me about the experience we're having in the church because we have to form the rebellion you know we have to unite (laughs) from all our disparate places against really very few individuals with way too much power Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and we have to bring back the democracy. Specific yeah. question for you, and um, just before we close out about mm. that exact thing about being the rebellion. Um, but I want to bring mm. it back to to specifically you, your story, Scott, because okay. your podcast really, really highlights to me an approach that I think is is not only needed amongst podcasts, but it's what I would see as as a sort of hope of the church. Um, If we could see a church, which as Peter, you know, often talks about the church in exile, a church that has excused Mm -hmm. Peter from its membership. um, (laughs) Very nice way. Where Alan has taken that step back, where where you're no longer affiliating with church and where I, you know, I don't really get to be there a lot of the time. What if, like you said, we're missing the point in a lot of the discussions that we're having around church doctrine and specifically the scriptures? What if how we're doing it is totally missing the point? And could we take this approach where, similar to what we just did with Star Wars there, where we're just leaving these questions? Like, is it possible that that's maybe not the right way to look at this. Is it possible there's a different approach? Is it possible that what we thought isn't quite what we thought? What if we do what you're doing in the podcast and have a discussion and leave some questions open and not have all the answers that we would really like to have? Yeah, I think that one of the first changes that needs to happen, and this is before anything else can really happen, is that they need to allow people to come to the table that disagree with them. And they need to give them space to talk and be respectful. You know, you could sit with someone who is on the complete opposite political spectrum from you and vehemently disagree with them, but you should still be nice to that person. And just because you've aired your grievances, you've talked about the differences in the way you view something, doesn't mean that you have to be mean to them and excommunicate them because they're talking about what really bothers them about an organization. You know, a lot of the people that get excommunicated, I don't think they want to leave the community. And I, it's so sad to me because when someone wants to participate, even if it doesn't look like an orthodox participation and they kick that person out, that is so sad to me because honestly, 
the richest conversations that I've ever had are not with people that agree with me. You know, I, I'm not, you know, intellectually or emotionally filled in an echo chamber. And so if I'm going to sit and talk to someone, I would prefer them to, you know, take a completely opposite stance on the Jedi from me. And then we could, you know, battle it out. And, you know, maybe I've been wrong the whole time. And maybe, you know, this, this or that point, you know, maybe it wasn't as strong as I thought. But how would I ever know that if I never talked to someone who disagreed with me? And I just think that there needs to be space at the table for everyone, no matter where they're coming from. And what if we don't need everyone to necessarily even uh, choose to engage with coming to the table? What if we allowed foyer church to be? What if we allowed car park church? You know, like I'll joke about my husband being bishop of the car park. Um, what if we just let that happen and let people engage how they want to engage? And if you feel strongly enough, that you would like a voice, then making sure that we get to amplify the voices of those who don't really get heard. We we got to see, um, you know, the, the huge emotional moment for me in one of the last Star Wars movies was the moment where we got to see that all, I don't know if it was all along, but at some point in Leah's journey, Leah uses the force. Leah, there is something that's happening with Leah's own power you can see her authority has been clear all along but it's been cemented that there's actually a whole um raft of possibilities that we hadn't even necessarily considered that we had a longing for that we've never even been able to acknowledge our own longing for because it's never been presented as an option those are the types of things that excite are you me. talking about heavenly mother <laughs> are you talking about heavenly mother and female priesthood <laughs> I, I need to email and ask if if that's what i'm talking about because i'm not sure if this comes up yeah, what i can talk, don't about, talk about heavenly mother I, I think that was the instruction from a recent yes i'm probably not it depends it depends who's listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is so sad because, you know, honestly, there is such a rich history in ancient Judaism with Heavenly Mother. Um, there are these little like Asherah statues that were commonplace in ancient Judean homes, and they are statues of the wife of God. And her name was Asherah. I mean, it is clear in this ancient practice that God had a wife. And it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know why the apologists or, you know, the church doesn't say this is a huge bullseye. Joseph Smith got it. He said that it was an mm-hmm. eternal family. Her name's Asherah. Boom. You know, it's it's one of those things that this could be a huge bullseye for the church, but it would dramatically change that the way that they have to teach the doctrine. But it's there. And I would welcome those types of changes, even just talking about them. It's, and this is what I love is to be able to, my longing is to go to church and feel stimulated and interested and having to go into the foyer to get that. Um, there's now, in our ward, there's no one left in the foyer. Hmm. We stop coming through the doors. Gone. Um, and that's the really heartbreaking thing about it. Yeah. Peter, Here's you- how it could work. Yeah. Sorry, ju- just quickly on that. So mm-hmm. some best practice. There are, you know, we hear in the blog and Ackle just these little rare glimmers of hope. So there are some wards and stakes that have organized two gospel doctrine lessons. There's one for sort of the mainstream people who just want the lesson from the manual. 
but then they appoint someone who's much more radical to have a more freewheeling dialogue in version two. So you literally have the foyer get in, you know, brought back into the fold and allowed to do their thing. I mean, someone shared that, you know, there are people experimenting with that or having the gospel topics essays as the subject at least once a month in in a Sunday lesson. So it can be done, you know, if you have that imagination and you're not scared. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've got to bring those spaces back and, and it can be done if they have, have the will for it at all. Yeah. I agree. Um, the biggest thing about that is just, just the gospel topics essays in themselves. Mm don't have to take away from faith. Yes, they have implications on what the doctrine maybe should mm. change to or what the, you know, mm. the things that might need to be different, but that doesn't need to mm. mean that church isn't true just because it's uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, and, and just, and, Peter mm. was talking about earlier on, Peter's having a, a Jedi faith deconstruction, but I'm assuming is not going to stop watching Star Wars, right? I mean, <laughs> could it be okay if it did, if it, if it changed the way your faith looks? Isn't that what's supposed to happen? Um, Peter, um, I'm going to come back to you, and I know there's a point that you're going to make, but if I could also just ask you, as part of your... Um, as, as part of your experience when you had your church disciplinary trial, you had spoke about mm. um, one of those famous Star Wars quotes that was actually from uh, Obi-Wan himself where he talked about, if you strike me down. <laughs> so, first of all, I'd like to talk about that quote for a second and give it its context. And yeah. second of all, if you would... Was that a threat? Because I think it was perceived as a threat. Mm. What does it actually mean? Mm. And thirdly, mm. where are you with that? Where has it taken mm. you? What have so, you yeah. So when in my sort of conversations with my state president, um, I, who who is um, who at the time I think had only been a member for ten years, he was a convert, uh, very intellectual. Um, very thoughtful, very much sort of loving the church as it is now, but perhaps not viscerally aware of how it has been. So perhaps didn't relate to a lot of where my pain was coming from and, and concern about the institution because his experience of it had been quite modern and fluffy. Um, and and I, I so I spent a lot of time just splurging him, trying to educate him about Mormon stories, about the world out there, about these systems, and and so on. I'm sure I just well I did. I babbled for hours. The poor guy, um, and it was information overload. But I did say to him like, but but it was also quite self aware because I was I'd already followed in detail Bill Reel's excommunication, Sam Young, John Delin. I know how it goes, and he I think was sort of aware of that too. So we were playing a game with each other. It's almost a dance that we knew what our roles were going to be and how it could well play out. Um, and I said, you know, if you, along the lines of, if you strike me down, you, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. As in, you, the church keeps making martyrs, and martyrs are powerful. And this is a Christian thing, not just a Jedi thing. The church built itself in the early years on the veneration of its martyrs, the people who had been done spectacular things to suffer for, for integrity in their faith and their beliefs. And this motivated the whole community. Um, and you know, it really was like you, 
So in a way, I wasn't afraid of him um, because I knew how it would play out that ultimately if they did choose to excommunicate me, that would be a you know bit looking at it strategically again, maybe like a Jedi, um, that it would just be a stepping stone to much bigger and greater things because that's a powerful story. It's handing you, 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 rather than they think they're chopping your head off and executing you, they're handing you their heads on a plate because it's appalling. It's an act of violence. It's unjustified in these situations. I have no problem with excommunication for people who are like genuinely evil or abusive or have hurt people because that is important that the institution shows solidarity with their victims by saying people who behave like that cannot be part of our community or they need to go through a process. I think that is an important boundary to make. But when it's to do with your beliefs, this is a whole different world and freedom of thoughts and so on. Um, and people were sort of joking like, well, when you someone commented, like when you're excommunicated, will you become a force ghost? So, <laughs> so I started using this, this little graphic of Yoda and Obi-Wan and myself as force ghosts, you know, <laughs> with, with my apostasy hat on. And um, we've had a lot of fun with that. Um, and, it, and it has, in a sense. I mean, I have I meant to have gone on Mormon stories ages ago to do kind of the ritual of telling your story of how you got excommunicated. Um, and it kind of got sabotaged by John himself saying, well, before that, I'd like you to make an episode that summarizes your very waffly podcast um, that, that we can put out and then we'll interview you. But that's going to take a year because he wants it to be a bloody movie. So <laughs> it's going to take ages, but it's going to be brilliant. I'm going to make it as good as we can make it. You know? Yeah, I, I've um, asked so in a sense, so, Peter yeah. State President, like I want to do a dramatic yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> do role plays. Yeah, I'll Lana's going to do um, musical <laughs> numbers, yeah. That's awesome. That's Be brilliant. Um, so, so that's all that. So, but yeah, because um, it 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 is very empowering. Um, every every week, I'm more powerful in myself personally, and this is the journey I'm kind of on now, more than yeah. as well as the institution, the voice that I can have as someone who's been through this and and can analyze it and reflect on that experience. And how what it shows us about the larger state of the church, um, but very much you know, I, I, they, these people don't have power over me. They can't keep me busy with the Mormon busy work, and so many guilt trips go away when you haven't got a calling or people to home <laughs> teach, and they're not there on a Sunday. And did you phone them? And should you have offered them a lift? And all that the guilt narratives that you just normalize growing up in the church, it's all gone. It's so liberating, and. But what is, but institutionally, you know, where we're talking about creating these safe spaces to speak at church, whether intentionally or not, three or two, two or three years ago, the church played an absolute blinder to ensure that there will never again on a Sunday be an open minded conversation. And it was with one simple act they killed the gospel principles class. Mm. So gospel principles was for investigators and new members to go to during Sunday school. Um, they come to Elders Quorum and Relief Society, but at least in gospel doctrine, while they're being fed the milk, you could discuss the meat in gospel doctrine. 
But now, and you couldn't in Elders Corman Relief Society because you have all the investigators and the new members there, and everyone's absolutely walking on eggshells the whole time that these people will not find out all the crap we want to break to them gently over many years too quickly which is, again, this dysfunctional, dishonest narrative we have in the church. We, you know, Adam God, racism, sexism, all of these things that we hope they won't find out about too soon, and we've been hiding from them as investigators usually. You know, now every gospel doctrine lesson is is a missionary lesson. And we've had a, we've got missionaries back for the first time in ages. We've had a flurry of baptisms. We've had four baptisms recently, which is brilliant. But I'm even behaving like I cannot say a fraction of what I was feeling comfortable saying when we didn't have the investigators in the room because I've been a missionary. I'm not going to go and sabotage it all. I'm not there. You know, I want them to have a positive experience. Um, But just that one strategic thing has changed everything. We can never again, as long as we've got missionaries and investigators and new members, we will never have the adult conversation in gospel doctrine. It's now dead. All gospel doctrine lessons are a, are a, an extremely paranoid missionary discussion now. That's it. You're They've right. killed it. And, and there is so, no way you can talk safely now. You yeah, just can't. So, we need to move to podcast to supplement that. Sorry, <laughs> No, I yeah. was I was just going to say. We, we, yeah. So, some of my favorite storytelling methods are when the writer, director, whoever the storyteller is, they treat the audience as an intellectual individual. I don't think that new investigators couldn't make those jumps, couldn't come to the connections or follow along Mm. with a lesson. Like there's no reason Mm. that they shouldn't be able to have a hard Mm. conversation. We don't need to treat them as Mm. children. They're not children just because they don't Mm. know all the concepts. Like I, I get, I get what you're saying. But I don't think that it has to have the impact that it has had. But it would take yeah. really brave individuals to hold a lesson that might be uncomfortable yeah. some for some. Yeah. The longer we don't talk about this stuff, the more difficult it gets to bring it up. And I, I, I think new members can absolutely be told a lot of really difficult stuff as long as we don't we give them realistic expectations. They'll be fine. They love this church. They love the people. They've had a good experience. We can let them know from the start that we're a work in progress, but we've got a top leadership who insist on their infallibility Hmm. and they've brainwashed a lot of people to believe it too. You know, I, I, we had one dialogue in gospel doctrine, um, the last Sunday where you still attend weekly talking about how, Oh yes. Yeah. I'm there. I'm watching it all. I'm, I mean, I'm partly witnessing the crash, but you know, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm holding my place. You know, I'm still wearing my garments. You know, oh. uh, I'm, they can't. Uh, why should I give them that power over me? You know, yeah. I decide what my my religion is. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I, and so there's something yeah, there that on. I think is really important. Mm. They don't have that power mm. over you, and I think the whole act of excommunication mm. is them like acknowledging that they don't have that power over you and to an effect them saying I'm no longer responsible for your spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just about, uh, but also yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, think, exactly. uh, but what, I, I sort of, I brought in, yes. Yeah. I'm I was just saying just that. Um, what was, you said, can on. I just say this quickly? Yeah. Um, when you're talking about, you know, new members and things like being able to speak and say things, I think, 
what chance have they got? Because myself as a long life member used to sit there really willing myself to just speak and say what I thought, but couldn't mm-hmm. for that fear. So I think if, if that's me who's a long life member, you know, it's more than likely not going to happen with somebody unless they're very vocal and outspoken anyway. Because I think so many times I sat there feeling so uncomfortable, not agreeing with what they were saying. It really impacted me and hurt me. Um, and again, I always feel like they're okay with other people feeling uncomfortable because we don't agree with them. But if we speak up against what they feel comfortable with, that's not okay. So it needs to work both ways where everyone is okay with feeling a little uncomfortable. You know, some of my family members left um, gospel doctrine lessons and things. They had to walk out because they couldn't listen to it. It was too painful. It was too... And I think and that should not be happening within the walls of what they try as the Church of Jesus Christ. That, That shouldn't be the case. And they really need to look at ways to change that. Yeah. And and something that's really striking me is to be conscious of now that most of the Liberals have gone, how many of our members in Britain and places outside of Utah are converts. They never did seminary. They never did institute. So they don't even know like the censored version of the history. They haven't gone that far. Literally all they're going on, most of them, is so, is gospel doctrine manuals and what the missionaries taught them. And and then I'm like, they don't even have the same religion as me because they love all this rigid boundary policing. They love being Pharisees. This is their religion. It's what they've latched onto and been taught to adore. And then, But then you have those moments where they did respond to our lessons in gospel doctrine where we introduced them to new things. And you could see that hunger within them as well that they want Christianity, they want something deeper, they want to be challenged to become like God rather than told how to behave. Um, And it's this tension, it's this constant, you know, even within people that's so tragic because we could unleash wondrous, beautiful, mind-expanding philosophy and thought and theology and religious community if they got rid of that fear and if we got rid of the leaders telling them that they're perfect and infallible. Because as soon as you have that, you can't ever discuss a problem. Yeah. One of the aspects of this is the church doesn't want to accept that everyone is a cafeteria Mormon, but everyone Mm -hmm. is a cafeteria Mormon. And everyone is pretending like they're not. But every single member that sits within those walls has a unique Mm -hmm. understanding of the church, a unique perspective that they're coming from, from their family or from the scriptures that they've read. Some people haven't read Doctrine and Covenants or even the Book of Mormon. And so they're going to have a different understanding of the religion. Every single member of the church is a cafeteria Mormon. Um, Scott, could you just, I just always pull back to this, just for anyone who might not know what a cafeteria Mormon is, could you just explain that? Of course. Yeah. So cafeteria Mormon is, is, you know, this metaphor that the theology is this cafeteria, you know, all you can eat buffet. And every single doctrine is a different food item on the menu. And we're told that we're supposed to eat every single food item on the menu, but everyone goes in there and only eats the things that they like or the things that jive with their soul. And there's no two people that go, you know, you go to the buffet, we can all four go and we're going to all get a different plate of food. And that's wonderful. You know, that's, that's beautiful. But everyone is pretending, and they're all sitting there at the table eating this unique plate, and they're pretending like, oh, yeah, we got the exact same thing. These potatoes are great. Oh, yeah, and none of them are eating potatoes. 
Thank you. That's that's the idea of cafeteria moments. I'm going to come round everyone to get some closing closing thoughts um, as we wrap up. I'll I'll come to um, Alana first, then Peter, and then we'll we'll have some closing thoughts from you, Scott. You don't need to um, put me on the pet, you know, on on the spot like oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alana, um, do you want to do you want to share some thoughts? I, I noticed um, that you had really responded whenever Peter talked about the last of guilt for not doing things anymore um, so thinking about, but also everybody wants to know how you're feeling so um yeah, yeah. just in general how I'm feeling or do you mean from my sickness yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is the longest I've been unwell for a while I took unwell on Saturday and today's the first day I've really been on my feet um yeah so I I really related it's so funny because I quickly messaged you and I'm like I don't know what you talk about in closing comments um, and she's like just talk about what you nodded what Peter was saying and I went I can't remember what I know did that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do. Um, so yeah, so I really related to that because <clears throat> twice in my life I've really felt that that release of the guilt, and that was the first time when I was excommunicated. Um, that I I always said that it did feel like a physical weight being lifted off my shoulders because I didn't have to feel that guilt, that shame. Now, I think back then I can still look back and say it probably was still there to some degree um, because it, it was ingrained in me, it was part of me, and although I, I didn't need to worry about being accountable, so to speak, for the things that the church had taught me, I feel deep down it, the, the slight guilt was still there. Um, of recent, I can't remember how long ago this was, was it a couple of months ago, Jane, that I said this to you? Um, I just I felt really good. Obviously, my mental health's been all over the place. And as I've been processing things, um, although I am medicated for my mental health, I've not always been the best at taking my medication. And I've actually been medication-free for some time now. And I would say, and that was my own choice, that wasn't my doctor's, I probably should still go on a small dose. But I've actually felt the best I've felt in a long time. And so I had to process what the change had been. And as I've processed this, and I, I I was listening to you guys while I was driving in the car home, and I, I think I heard you saying, Scott, you know, that that um, you're not giving the church the 100% responsibility for, for your mental health, and I totally am with you on that. You can't give all the responsibility to them, but I would say a big part of it is, a big part of it is, um, as I always say, going back to the not feeling good enough, not doing enough, I need to be a better person, I need to read my scriptures more, even though I find them boring, you know, all these things. And as I've reflected on what the change has been, I said to Jane, I finally feel free. I finally feel free of that shame, of that guilt. I finally learned to let it go. And I don't feel any of it now. I, I don't feel I'm not good enough. Probably small, small elements of that still creep in, you know, we're human. Um, you know, something, especially with being a parent, you know, I could be doing better and you know, all these things. But I don't feel that shame of that I go out an odd weekend and have a little drink or, you know, that I have an odd vape here and there or, you know, whereas before when I used to do these things, it was always in the back of my mind that this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't God's way. Whereas now I can look at it and say, God loves me the way I am. You know, I don't need to feel that guilt of a religion telling me how to live my life. Does it make you a bad person because you have a little drink? Does it make you a bad person because you say a few swear words here and there? 
I don't believe so. And I just, I honestly can wholeheartedly say now, I finally feel free of that. And I feel in my life, that's where the biggest change has come with my mental health. Obviously, my mental health, if you listen to my podcast, comes from a lot more than just that. You know, it's a history of abuse and things like that. But having dealt with a lot of that through counselling, therapy, etc., I think that was one of the biggest parts that was left for me. And I now can honestly say that I feel so free having walked away from the damage that the church has caused me and would still have caused me and could have caused my daughter had I not chose to walk away. Thank you. And that so is my story. And sharing that, I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, I think meds are really important. Um, you know, Scott's already spoken uh, you know a little bit about that but um I think if we're at the stage where we have to medicate in order to attend church it's a sign that there's something really going on there um yeah so obviously your journey continues and meds are something that you're looking at yeah we're we're with you um Peter finding the um, right dosage is its own journey Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Peter, could we talk um, to you? One of the yeah, one of the wisest things I've uh, sort of saw Paul Toscano, who was sort of associated with the September six um, comment, was where he said that um, kind of describing what's missing from the leadership in the church these days. You know, Hugh Nibley warned us that the lawyers and the businessmen would take over, and most of them are now business management and lawyers. And Paul Toscano in a comment um, in, in a Facebook discussion or post or something a few years ago said, you know, what's missing is these people have not had a liberal arts education. They don't understand literature. They don't understand story. They don't understand the stuff of scripture and religion and all of that stuff. They just function very functionally to the point where Russell and Nelson will discipline us all for getting the name of the church wrong. And the reward for getting it right is not some miraculous new chunk of scripture. It's a new logo. I mean, you know, and he thinks he's won because he's rebranded and changed some meetings around because that's a success for lawyers and business people. And he just really pointed out that missing ingredient. And something that when when I first engaged with Terrell and Fiona Gibbons and read, um, initially I was in, my sister-in-law gave me their book about the Book of Mormon by the Hand of Mormon. And what really struck me was how often as people who are trained in literature and English and so on and language, they quoted and referenced culture. They referenced, you know, things like Shakespeare or stories and they brought that cultural knowledge to what they were talking about and i just want to give give credit to scott that that from his sort of you know connections with pop culture and with with literature and books and and going philosophical i think what you are offering is so precious because it is in that tradition that you are coming from a position where you really get religion. You understand it. You understand its cultural importance. You understand the human experience and the journey and your points of reference are not sales. They're not advertising. They aren't winning a legal argument by deceptively lying and making everyone think your client's perfect, <laughs> which is how businessmen and lawyers think. 
and you know that's most of our apostles now you're coming from humanity the lived experience and and the fact that it is a journey and we don't have the answers but we're learning and we're, we're going on that journey and this is the kind of thing that john a witso at his best and hubie brown talked about that we have to bring our ideas to the marketplace of ideas as hubie brown taught the people of byu and that you have to survive in that marketplace your ideas have to be challenged you talked about how if only we could have people who are opposites sit together and learn from each other most of the dumb incompetent mistakes our leaders are making <laughs> are simply because they've refused to listen to us to critics to people who will challenge them um so they don't know reality they become disconnected they don't realize the mistakes they're making um and so I'm, I'm just want to welcome you to the podcasting world, Scott, you know, with what you're bringing, it is so important. Um, I think there's one of the infants on thrones, I always forget his name, I apologize, who does similar things where he goes on really long meandering <laughs> sort of philosophical <laughs> streams of consciousness. Um, Scott's much easier to listen to. It's just half an hour <laughs> and it mostly makes sense. I so, try um, and so keep it like that thing. Yeah, I strongly recommend you. So I just want to pay tribute to what you're contributing and thank you for it because we need yeah. so much more of that. We need, <clears throat> that is what will bring balance to the force of the Mormon experience and the thought experience. Mm -hmm. um, and even to get away from history, I mean, I love history and historians, but so much of the discourse is very much around um, just facts and debating facts and history and, and science and so on. Um, and what I love about the Mormon discussions group that Bill Real is nurturing and where he's gone with a lot of his voices, um, plus the sexy voice, of course, um, <laughs> is to, 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 he's, he, he's like the bishop of the people of, of the post-Mormons. He, he, he cares about um, and gives people opportunity to talk about the human journey and the experience and the feelings of things really well. And I'm, I'm just really pleased you've joined his team and are bringing that and, and thank you for that. And we look yeah. forward to everything else you're going to produce. <laughs> well, thank you. Good luck. Bless Very you. kind words. Link to Peter's <laughs> latest, long-awaited episode um, of <laughs> Civil War. Um, I hope you're working on the latest one. You know, we, your audience's expectations. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll link to all of that. And if you want to get in touch with Peter, he is on the Mormon Civil War channel. Um, but Scott, um, we've had <laughs> we've had comments about that voice. <laughs> yeah, mm. to objectify you and reduce you to just you know uh yeah i hope that there's some substance and it's not just the voice uh, uh, well, I hope that people come back for what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah the substance is awesome would you share some thoughts in closing out yeah and i 100 percent agree with what peter was saying the the incorporation of literature storytelling it's the examination of the human condition and at its core that's what religion started out being mm -hmm. it, it it existed in a space to explore the human condition and try and make sense of this crazy world that we're living in and so for me studying religion is the exact same thing as studying literature watching an excellent movie you know, wherever the medium is, you can find that same 
source of inspiration that created religion in the first place. Now, as far as the tone and the messaging mm-hmm. style for my podcast, I 100% have my wife to thank for that. I kind of used her as a an experimentation place. <laughs> uh, maybe not directly, but in the early discussions that I had with her, I was very blunt. I was very like, this happened and that happened. And this is why, what that means. And we shouldn't believe this because X, Y, and Z. And it was really contentious. <laughs> it was not helpful for our marriage. And I quickly learned that if I wanted to have a good discussion with her, I had to allow her to come with a different interpretation of the events and that was hard to learn and i'm using that same sort of of concept with the episodes that i present and and honestly one of the things the comments that a lot of people say is there is they accuse me of having said something and i will oftentimes say go back and listen i actually didn't tell you what i think about this um in the most recent episode that just came out um, this this listener was saying, you know, you said X, Y, and Z about the plan of salvation. And I, and I responded to him, no, I didn't. I actually didn't give any of my thoughts about the plan of salvation. I explained the scenario and explained why that is, why it is an unfair test. But I didn't give any of my thoughts or any of the conclusions that I make on this test. I just presented the problem and I asked a couple questions. And that's typically how I do these episodes. I try to at least, where I'll present a problem ask a handful of questions and then just leave it at that. Um, very few times do I feel like I'm giving exactly what I think about any of the topics that I discuss. And I like that um, okay. because it's, it gives the listener something to chew on after the episode. And for me, some of my best, mm-hmm. my favorite stories are the ones that I think about for weeks after I finished reading the book or watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to plug a, a recent movie that I absolutely love. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I went and watched that. I've seen it three times in theaters because I can't get enough of it. I, I, It's been like a month since the first time I've seen it. And a day doesn't go past where I don't think about that story. And that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast. I want people to listen to the episodes and I want them throughout the rest of the week to think, wow, you know, what does that mean about the world that I live in? Um, so that's kind of what I'm shooting for. And I think you achieve it so, so well. Um, I, I fully intend to go and see that movie because I've been, I've been remembering that to hit you hard. Content warning. It's pretty explicit. So it's yeah. not for everyone. It, it's okay. Well, she'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, three times. Um, I, I guess in, in closing, um, that you know, something that Alana and I have always felt strongly about that we that we like to do as we thank our guests is to also offer our blessing on our guests. Um, you know, regardless of where you stand and where we stand, yeah. we we just really want to bless the fact that you're in this space which is so exciting and so stimulating and so we have been blessed your audience is blessed but um really for you was we've been so struck by the fact that you've come into this space and you've it's a creative endeavor and so we we bless you that you are able to um enjoy that 
creation and that stimulation and that you can reach people who really need to hear your message and approach. Um, we, we bless you to find every success and and your family that that you can be as supported as you possibly can be as you as you enjoy this world it's hard work it takes out of you being a podcaster um and i know that bill reels support is fantastic but let's let's just you know make sure we're we're calling that out too if you want to support <laughs> ramium some ruminations you it's a Dot com. How do we how do we find you? Uh, Remyumptumruminations.org and then on the right hand side of the page. Yeah. On the right hand yeah. side of the page, there is a donation box. And you know, donate, don't donate. If you can afford it, cool. If not, I'm still gonna keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think the 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 key for me is learning that so many people really want to know how they can help. You know, they, they really want to donate. And um yeah, so Go, go send it, Scott's <laughs> doing a fantastic job. Um, and, you know, the creative in, endeavors often it's just sort of seen as something that you that you do to relax or that you do as, you know, something that you find fun. There's a lot of work goes into the act of creation. Yeah. So um, thank you for everything that you sacrifice in order to bring that to us. And let's encourage the audience just to show our thankfulness for what we're receiving and send that I your really way. I appreciate that. Um, we're going to close out. In Spanish, real quick, in Spanish, when women <laughs> give blessings or anything like that, they call it the mujerdocio, which is like the womanhood. So it's it's like a play on words of the priesthood. So you've just, you've just expressed your mujerdocio and given me a blessing. And I really appreciate that. I did not know that. Thank you so much. Um, and I have full work. I need to now go watch Star Wars, right? <laughs> Find the story that jives with your soul, and that's yeah. what you should do. Well, that sounds really thoughtful and things, but you know, so Alana and Alana has a daughter, and Charlie and I, my husband and I, you know, we, we all spend a lot of time together, and Charlie has. Um, berated this woman for for the last <laughs> wars, um, so it, it's kind of not really been an option. It's considered a huge character failing. <laughs> and I just made the mistake of saying back to Charlie, "Well, someone only to educate me now," and he's like, "Yeah, me," and I'm like, "And he will do it." Here now, his Wars lightsaber battles but um yeah so we will be catching up thank you so much for joining us tonight um we especially as this is light relief in among some of the really serious stuff that we're dealing with throughout this month um we're going to ask you to um join us next sunday where we've got a scheduled chat we've got sam young is coming on this month we've got dana kimball um a survivor of abuse from a high profile um a relative of a high profile church leader um we are talking about lots of things related to this broad subject of abuse Mm. through this month we're talking about domestic violence um and we're also going to be having a charity organization that supports um 
children who have been victims of childhood, children and adults who have been victims of childhood sexual assault. If you need any support with any of the issues that we're discussing this month or even that we've we've talked about tonight, um, please do reach out. We will put links in the show notes, but we want to just sort of keep that as our focus tonight. Um, so, yeah, go listen to Rami Ramiations. Uh, listen to Peter's latest episode. Alana and I will be back with you super soon and you'll have a blessed evening and blessed journey. Good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hey, you made it to the end of the episode. This is quite a bit longer than my normal episodes, so I'm not sure that many of you are going to get to this part, but that's okay. I had so much fun with my time over there with the with 21st Century Saints, Jane, Alana, and also Peter Bleakley. I look forward to being able to podcast and chat with them on other subjects down the road. So to those of you that are still here after two hours, which is much longer than my usual episodes, thanks for sticking around. And I hope that you have an excellent day.